Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we totally don't rip on men all the time. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Well, if they would stop talking for a minute, we wouldn't have to. <laughs> they would just sit there and look pretty. Exactly. You know, then it's it's just the natural order of things. So that's that's why we have men. You know, just <laughs> sit there, and look pretty. Sit there, and look pretty. You know, just smile more. <laughs> oh my God! So, how are you doing today, Karen? I uh, I'm doing okay. I've actually had a rough uh, week with men, so because <laughs> I have to work with them, not for any other reason um and yeah it's like boys boys are annoying they're so annoying (laughs) but that's okay i did have the pleasure of going to see hamilton on stage this week so how was that like what what is is this a traveling cast or is this like yeah okay yeah this is the the national tour and so they're they're i think probably the la run i haven't looked into it but i'm assuming the la run is kind of their first stop and they'll be here for a while like um like two or three months i think yeah so i think opening night was actually last night so we were at the preview the night before opening night and um it's it's interesting because i had never seen it on stage before it's been to la before but i didn't get to go i couldn't afford 500 tickets And so I have only seen the Disney plus filmed version, which is great. And I love it. And I love David and I love Lynn and Anthony and Philippa and Renee Elise and all of them. Um, They're great. It's really great, great cast. So I was nervous about watching, watching it on stage with a bunch of different people that I didn't know because the only person in it that I recognized was the guy that played King George but um it was it was cool because the experience of watching something live is always going to be different from watching it on screen and usually better and that was the case here there's just a lot of lighting effects and sound and the dancing and things that get lost when you're watching it on the screen and so getting to enjoy the whole experience of seeing it on stage made me just not care that I wasn't seeing David Diggs as Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, you know, or whatever, you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, Yeah. So it was great. It was a great cast. Um, Some of the performers were a little bit, I don't know. It felt like some people were kind of a little stiff and it was just like, come on, move, you know, (laughs) like the guy that played Hamilton. It was just like, he just, I don't know. And I'm sure that part of that was just the character, but it feels like in this kind of environment you should just be like move your shoulders a little bit or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah but... i mean you, you always get those different interpretations of characters and, mm-hmm. and things like that but i i one of the things about show is that it's so demanding 
vocally yeah. for everybody, right? You yeah. have to you have to have a good cast. You you pretty much can't play the show without having people that can handle the language and handle right. all the different types of music that's being done. Um, but yeah, but you always get those different interpretations of characters. I saw. Um, I think I I'm trying to remember what cast it actually wound up being. I think it was. It may have been the second cast after sort of all the the original um, the original cast had left, right? Mm-hmm. And the guy who played um, Thomas Jefferson was great, but completely different, like physically, kinetically, everything from <laughs> David Diggs. And it was really interesting, actually, because I saw that that first. I saw it on, on Broadway first, and then I saw the, um, I, I'd listened to the soundtrack before, but, um, and then I saw the, the version that's on Disney Plus, and it was interesting. So I was like, I really like both of these. Mm-hmm. I think it, it worked really well. Like both of them were really great, but completely different, you know, performers and and different body types and everything so it was yeah and like the disney plus version i think is really great and i highly recommend it for people who still haven't watched it it is it is three hours it's a commitment but you can watch it in chunks and there is an intermission um but i i think that it's really great especially to um you can turn on the captions because i had to do that and because they're so fast that it's like there's so much that i don't catch and um and so it's great for understanding the story and great for following following the the lyrics and the the music and knowing what's happening and where people are but then watching it live is great for the the whole um like for all of the effects and really getting to see the costumes really getting to see the way the stage works and the way it moves and the lighting and the sound design and and all of that like it's really I, I feel like so much of the the production value um, of the of what you get from a live product production um, is lost when you translate that to the screen. But yeah. they also did a really great job of filming it, so you still can in, like the, you can enjoy both of them for very different reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It was, it was amazing. It. So. Me too, and it felt. It felt safe. I mean, the theater was crowded, but everyone there had to be vaccinated. We had to show our vaccination card when we walked mm-hmm. in and, and all that. So it's like, I'm at this point where I'm my, my personal anxiety is really starting to come down because I've been trying to only go places where I know that the people around me are also people who are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. I I'm like, I'm sort of the same way in that I've, calmed down a lot I've definitely calmed down since I got vaccinated I've calmed down since I got back to New York um but it's I don't know it's it's weird because of course you can never know and I I think it's slightly different in LA also in New York I mean you go out and you're around people it doesn't matter where you like there's there's not any particular barrier between you and the rest of humanity. <laughs> if I walk outside of my apartment door, I'm immediately interacting with other people. Um, but <laughs> Yesterday I walked outside to, to go somewhere and my neighbor was in his car in his driveway and he waved at me and I was so surprised. I was just like, oh, <laughs> hi, <laughs> there's a person there. Uh, but yeah, but you know, even I'm just kind of, I think at a certain point, yeah, especially if you're vaccinated, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and everything, you're kind of like, okay, I have to, I, I want to go and do things and, and exist outside of, you know, the little tiny, little tiny space, but yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So we have a couple of different things to talk about. We have sort of, uh, we've, we've referred to these as whiplash episodes before, but frankly, as we discussed when we were actually talking about what we were going to, to uh, discuss on this, this week's episode, I was like, this actually fits together perfectly in my opinion. <laughs> um, so just to close out, we've been talking about animation for, for the past week or so. We recorded our, our bonus episode about Roger Rabbit, which um, patri- patrons can listen to the full episode. And if you're not a patron, I keep on wanting to call them Patreons, but they're not, it's on Patreon and you are patrons. Um, So if you're not a pay on, So it, yes, if you're if you're not a patron, you can listen to I think the first 15 minutes are available on Podbean. So we've been talking about animation, adult animation, um, you know, different types of animation, all that sort of thing. So we haven't really addressed the the other side of it, which is children's animation, and and specifically Disney. So you know, Disney is kind of the dominant am- animation studio, definitely in the United States, and I think probably in a lot of ways abroad, simply because they have so much control and there's such a recognizable company um there's such a, a massive company right and uh and so we wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that disney has dominated animation for so long um so karen you you had a few thoughts about this um so i'm gonna let you you start and then we can we can discuss our feelings about disney of which i have multitudes <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I, I guess I was just thinking about, especially after our discussion last week, where we were talking about um, a little bit of the history of animation, and then um, what it's done for, for film, but we were talking about it more from the adult perspective, and, um, and how adult animation can really explore some interesting themes. And I don't know for me looking at i mean i'm I'm pretty sure we both grew up at least a little bit on disney cartoons and disney movies and stuff and like i remember um i don't know which is the very first one i saw in the theater but i know that they went through a phase like in the 80s and 90s where they were re-releasing their classic disney cartoons in theaters so i've seen snow white and the and the seven dwarves on a big screen i've seen cinderella and sleeping beauty you know in a movie theater and um and then of course i was in junior high when the when the disney renaissance started with the little mermaid and then beauty and the beast but um i've i you know i always i loved i loved the disney movies i loved them they were i was kind of obsessed you know i I, we wore out videotapes of cinderella you know and it's funny because i remember when i was in high school we were doing it was i guess this would have been my senior year i think we were doing a project about um uh fairy tales and so we were in groups and we were doing these group group projects and so each group had a different fairy tale and we got to pick whatever one we wanted but then we had to basically do a project that was um exploring different iterations of this fairy tale and my group had the little mermaid and which at the time i was obsessed with and uh i loved ariel and when we were reading like the grim story (laughs) and some of the other like more 
you know, original stories about the Little Mermaid, I was horrified. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the more horrifying original yeah. stories. I think I think that one of one of the big ones is is uh, Hans Christian Andersen's version mm-hmm. where and I I'm trying to remember is that the one where she I think she turns, she turns into, into sea foam. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's very dark. And then she spends the rest of her time, her days or whatever, you know, as Seafoam watching the prince and his new bride. And then they, yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And, and so it was like, that was when I first really started to realize in high school. And I, it's like, I kind of knew that they had changed some stories. I remember my brother talking about in Cinderella, where one of the versions the stepsisters are like cutting off their heels and their toes to make yeah. the slipper fit and that kind of thing. And it wasn't a glass slipper and all that. And so that was where I really started to understand how much Disney had, had not just changed these stories, but had really created its own Disneyfication of fairy tales. It really had, had become its own thing. And so I think that that was, um, I think it was good and bad. I think that that I mean there a lot of these stories all these stories are in some way are morality tales. Disney uses them for very different uh very different version of that. And I think that because they become sort of for for our time they become sort of the definitive versions now of of these stories i think that it's too bad because they're entertaining but i think it it really uh diminishes the the conversation the really great conversations that can result from you know like talking about stepsisters that are so desperate to marry the prince they would cut off their own feet (laughs) you know yeah um well and i mean i think i think that that's why there's so much there's a lot of popularity um involved with like retelling so it's very often retellings but often what it actually is is just using the you know you always say original most of these are oral tradition stories right Right, yeah there's not a real original version yeah there's a but we tend to say things like Grimm, uh hans christian anderson and a lot of the big ones right that we that we know about are um uh, the originals, right? So when you're talking about Grimm, the Grimm stories are meant for children, but they are very dark. A lot of right. Yes. Yeah, so, so the the Grimm the Grimm stories, Hans Christian Andersen stories, you know, those those tend to be the ones that you know we refer to as the originals. But these are like expansive stories. But I think that that's one of the reasons why um, uh, why sort of adult versions of those tales have become very popular is because a lot of these stories have been so disnified so you get like okay let's tell the true story as it were of the little mermaid the true story of cinderella um and and actually address some of those much darker elements uh rather than rather than sort of the lightness that is in disney films that being said disney can be pretty fucking dark mm-hmm um and even the little mermaid which is you know a fairly fairly light film uh when you begin to dig into some of the symbolism some of the sort of just or even just the superficial violence and things like that it's quite frightening in a lot of ways ursula is terrifying ursula is terrifying yeah um i do think you know dis disney disney's problematic as we know uh, and and especially in terms of its representations of gender and things like that and and sexuality as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the Little Mermaid is probably the worst at that level. <laughs> um, 
I, I remember at one point actually going to, uh, to Disney World with um, some friends. We did, we did like a, a road trip and we were talking about like, oh, we have to listen to Disney songs, you know, do all this. And then we began talking about the fact that, you know, all of these films are about sexuality and are, and so we like to begin spinning out these, you know, these pretty standard analyses of like how the little mermaid is actually about losing your virginity and about growing up and your father not wanting you to lose your virginity and all of this <laughs> stuff. It's about like violent patriarchy and uh, and I think that it is not an accident that Ursula has eight legs and <laughs> is is of a questionable sexuality, I guess. You know, she uh, the character is actually modeled after Divine um, and, and is very much like this sort of robust physical presence who is kind of acting as this evil, supposedly counterpoint to, um, to Ariel's father. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so Dis- Disney. I had, sorry, I have to j- just jump in really quickly. I don't know if you, well, you probably weren't old enough to remember, but I remember when The Little Mermaid came out, and there were all those um, all those complaints because of some of the things that were slipped in by the animator. Like they had to recall the VHS tape when that came out because there was a dick on the cover. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I had that poster in my bedroom <laughs> for a while. My mom would just like, she had no idea. She didn't know. And then one day I finally pointed it out to her. She was like, oh, Karen, I can't believe you have that in your room. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I think that the first Disney film I saw, not the first one I saw in the theater, but the first one I saw was Lady and the Tramp. Oh, Because okay. um, I, I just loved, I loved animals and um, and my parents like had a VHS of it. And so I yep. just watched it constantly. Wore that one out too. <laughs> I watched it, con- I could probably quote the entire film. I think that if you started me off, I could probably quote the entire film. Um, but, you know, there's so much problematic shit in Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Disney I think is actually a really great representation of sort of wherever where the the mainstream culture is at the time Um, both in terms of representations of gender race you know sexuality um, what is valued in the culture and and so watching Disney films throughout the ages you kind of look at them and go like okay we can pretty much tell what the values were and what the prejudices were in the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s and how those change um you know I don't think it's an accident that the Little Mermaid comes out in what 1989 at kind of the height of the backlash right uh it's it's also not an accident that um you know you've got all of these racial caricatures in Dumbo and uh in Peter Pan Mm-hmm. um but well and i think that um it's you know we have we have people today who are like we want to go back to you know the good old days and they have this vision of what that means and i think a lot of the people that are calling for that are people who like me grew up on the disney movies of the 50s and the disney values of the 50s and they don't acknowledge or recognize that those times weren't good for everyone and those depictions weren't good for everyone. And it's, uh, yeah, I think that that's part of the problem. Like as much as I love those movies, I think that that's part of the problem of the backlash that we're seeing today in culture of people wanting to reclaim this, you know, these old days 
as somehow being better and it's because yeah sure everything looks better when it's filtered through a disney you know lens it looks all sparkly and pretty and nice yeah definitely and and disney films are odd in some ways because they are a lot of it is just representing what the values of the culture are at the time period the and and by that i mean very mainstream right yeah so very white usually very patriarchal etc but you watch something like dumbo and if you did not like as a kid i did not know the significance of jim crow oh yeah no idea right had no clue it just it it didn't even register with me i wouldn't have imagined to me it was just like oh these are crows and they're funny and they sing a song Mm -hmm. right that's all that it really was and then you get a little bit older and you know the history of jim crow and you know what those images are actually doing and it's suddenly like wow this is racist yeah and overtly so (laughs) yeah it's and in some ways you know that that time period it's no different than what a lot of hollywood was doing at that time with representations of black people but there's somehow something more insidious and distressing about it being in dumbo because it's for children yeah um and because it's still like you're saying it's still being sold to children Mm-hmm. Um, and shown to children and it, it is this weird kind of thing where it's like well a lot of kids aren't going to get it right a lot of kids are not going to have any sort of understanding about how racist yeah these depictions are because they are crows they're anthropomorphic crows mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah and well and what i was talking about last week too and we've talked about this before but kids tend to filter out the things that they don't understand but that doesn't mean that on some level that doesn't sink in which is part of why those images are so bad like even if we don't understand at the time you know if you're watching it at age seven and you don't get it but you're still being imprinted with that yeah uh, that experience so same same thing with the the siamese cats and um uh in lady and the tramp uh although that that the the information that i took in from that was don't trust cats so (laughs) to this day i I don't like siamese cats (laughs) so sweet um uh, no they're don't, not don't trust cats they are uh, cats in general are great <laughs> uh and, and oh the the other one that i think is is in some ways even more egregious than um than the jim crow one which is pretty bad because whenever i say it, like mm, my god i can't believe they did that I know. Uh, um is is actually the representation of quotation marks indians in um in peter pan and that one i think is worse in some ways because it is quite obviously a caricature of native people yeah um and 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 yes that is from peter pan like but peter pan was also written in the 19th century um Mm -hmm. by a british dude so so the that kind of representation is in a lot of ways very damaging on the other side of it i i spent a lot of time in the southwest as a kid um, my parents liked like, touring around. We went to a lot of Indian reservations, a lot of um, Pueblos and communities, et cetera. And I remember my grandmother at one point called, like ha- having a conversation with her. My grandmother asking, and this is, again, reminded that this is a woman who grew up during the depression and not always the most progressive individual said, um, well, have you seen any Indians? <laughs> and I said, no. Because to me, the concept of an Indian was, I've been taught to, to refer to, um, to Native peoples as Native Americans. And to me, the concept of an Indian was what was in Peter Pan. And I'd definitely not seen anyone who was like that. 
So right. it's like, no, of course not. But of, of course she was actually referring to the indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, so it was this interesting kind of, I also was unaware at the time that I was a white person. Uh, that because I imagined white people as being like literally sheet white. So <laughs> there are things I just didn't know as a little white girl in, in the 1990s. Um, Cause it just didn't. You make and me I, feel so old when you talk about that. <laughs> and that's, pri that's privilege too. You know, definitely. I grew up in a very, in a very white community. There were not a lot of people of color, um, et cetera. But it, but so it was interesting that my immediate reference was, uh, was to Disney. Right. And, but I was also like, but I don't know anybody that looks like, that looks like whatever those Indians are in, um, uh, in Peter Pan. So definitely no, I have not seen any Indians. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, sorry. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's interesting. I don't know. It's interesting how Disney. It's interesting how Disney has sort of shaped the way. <laughs> I'm gonna leave this on. I'm gonna leave this on to shame him. Yes. Yes. Do it. <laughs> uh, it's interesting the way that Disney has shaped the way that we actually that the way that a lot of people perceive. Um, perceive our culture, perceive film. Like you said, this is one of the first, very often a Disney film, especially for American kids. And, and I think that probably for a lot of kids, at least in the West, Disney films are, are among the first things that you see as a child. Um, and, and that definitely shapes the way that we understand the world. And it's an animated world. It's a world where nothing is really 100% explicit. Um, even though there are a lot of these moral stories and there are a lot of these values that are being sold to us as children. So it's, it's interesting. I think that we need to note how, um, how responsible children's animation really is for the shaping of young minds and the perception of including everything from gender and sexuality to race to, um, to, to you know, human rights, basically. Yeah. And Disney does good on some of those, I, I have to say. There are a lot of good values that Disney has as well, but there's also a lot of really bad ones. Very much, yeah. Any, any last thoughts about animation, Disney animation? Um, I, I, I think just going back to what you were saying about how Disney kind of does roll with the times and the values tend, the values of what they put out in their content tends to reflect where we're at in the world. And so by, by saying that, I, I think once again, we should know film history and you should watch uh, the the older stuff but also i think that look at at what is coming out now look at a movie like ralph breaks the internet which has some really great moments and as soon as i was watching it i was mm -hmm. like this definitely was written by a woman and i was right it was co-written by a woman um but really i think that we have i mean we have to accept that disney is part of our culture it's a really it's a really significant part and so it's totally fine to not enjoy Disney films, especially Disney animated films. Totally fine not to like them, but it's kind of hard to avoid them. And I think anybody who, uh, anybody who really is is interested in film, and and especially people who write about film and pop culture, you can't just dismiss Disney outright. You have to interact with it on some level. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that. Disney films are among the few that we really do, they really do seem to be ubiquitous. 
Yeah. So like, like you say, you know, watching films that were made in 1938 or 1940 mm-hmm. in the same way that, what, that we watched films that were made in 1986 or they're made in 1992 or that are made, you know, in, in 2020. Um, and, and we definitely have to understand those within their historical context as well, which doesn't excuse the choices that were made, but does at least put them in within a context so that we understand what we're watching, not just um, uh, not just deciding, you know, this is this is morally good or morally bad. Right. Well, and and yeah, and and I think that's a that's a great point. And and just in the in the context of like Dumbo, for example, if we look at the if we it's easy for people and I see people do this a lot where they just go, well, that was a different time. And so they dismiss it as like, we know better now that was a different time, but let's really interrogate why they felt like it was okay to put those characters and directly reference Jim Crow in a cartoon for kids. That's not just because it was a different time. There's mm-hmm. other reasons why they felt like that was okay. And so, so yeah, if we're going to really talk about history and we're going to really talk about context, that means we need to really understand the, what the full context was and what the implications yeah. of it were. It's, and as you pointed out, a lot of ways it's setting up a background of racism for yeah. small children, right? Yeah. So establishing like, okay, we're going to establish from the time that they are five years old, that this is the way that black people are, that, that we're going to set up the concept of Jim Crow for them so that as they grow up, they are racist. They, yeah, they, because then kids hear the term Jim Crow, yeah. they associate it with the crows from a movie that they like. And so then it becomes something not threatening or dangerous. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's quite insidious. And and I think it does say that that animation, you know, D- Disney can't change its past and it shouldn't try to. Right. Um, and we do, but we do definitely need to understand it in context and to talk about it, and to talk about the fact that no, this was not okay. And not changing their past does not mean they should not update their rides at Disneyland. <laughs> People <laughs> need to stop fucking freaking out every time they update things like taking taking the you know <laughs> taking I mean, all the the tar baby stuff out of um splash mountain like that needed to go it was time i like, i mean on. yeah yeah i remember going like i was i i think i think is splash mountain now um princess and the frog they're working on it it's they're, i think supposed to open it. next summer yeah because i remember going to see going to splash mountain and standing in line and like it's a great ride but also standing there and like talking with my friends being like you guys know where where all of these characters like come from and they were like no not really and i was like okay so let me tell you about song of the south yeah exactly (laughs) um and then it's horrifying because you're also like oh great (laughs) so glad so glad and you know this wasn't that long ago this this was back in um I guess it was that long ago. It was back in, I think, 2009, 2010, something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I saw it one time um, because they did a re-release of it. I think that originally came out in the 40s, maybe the 50s. And they did a re-release of it in the 80s, late 80s. And (laughs) my family, we went and saw it, like, (laughs) with cousins and stuff. And that's the only time I've ever seen it because they didn't release it on, oh, maybe they did release it on video. We didn't get it, though um so it's i never rewatched it ever and then of course disney's buried it now but 
it's yeah there's so many people now i'm realizing today that have never actually seen that movie and completely missed the the imagery and and what (laughs) splash mountain is really all about and why it's good that they are updating that one uh well so moving on from the horrifying to the even more horrifying um (laughs) the other thing that we wanted to talk about today was um horror films because we are getting into spooky season i know that it's still august when we are recording but push it into it it's even cooled off a little bit here in new york so i'm like ooh, i get to watch horror movies soon um (laughs) always exciting but uh of course the most recent horror film to be released is Nia DaCosta's Candyman, uh, which I, I'm I'm going to try to get Karen to talk about a little bit in in a moment, <laughs> but because I haven't seen it yet, even though I really want to, but I'm just not not going to movie theaters right now. Um, but we wanted to talk a little bit about like urban legend horror films, specifically about those films that are are kind of make uses of either urban legends that are constructed within the film or recognizable urban legends, those kind, those stories, you know, the hook hand kind of stories. Um, the, well, she died 15 years ago this very night kind of, na- kind of <laughs> narratives, uh, which of course we, we all sort of know because that's the point of an urban legend. Everybody has heard these kinds of stories before. It's all, it always happens to a friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit about horror films that actually make use of those. So, you know what, before we actually talk about the movies themselves, let's talk about some of the urban legends that we know of and <laughs> have heard a million times. <laughs> I mean, some of the big ones, you know, there are a lot of local ones, right? So you, you've got the local tales of so-and-so killed his wife on this day and right. things like that. Um, but I mean, some of the big ones are, are like, you know, the, the, the guy who meets a girl um, usually in a bar or at a restaurant or something and they they keep on meeting every night and he's like falling in love and then eventually he goes to her house and her parents or a friend or someone says this isn't funny um you know she died 15 years ago today and things like that (laughs) um i've definitely heard a lot of stories along those lines the hook hand killers the killer in the the backseat yeah there's the college dorm one where like a girl comes back to her apartment or like her dorm to get something but she knows her roommate's asleep so she doesn't want to wake up her roommate so she um doesn't turn the light on just gets what she needs and leaves and then the next day it turns out that her roommate was murdered and there's like a note on the wall and blood that's like good thing you didn't turn on the light last night or something like that (laughs) like oh well or or even like i think every single college has you know some sort of the student who who committed suicide in the dorm room and then haunts the dorm yeah the um you know especially the the college where not where i went to school although i i went to school at a very old university there were like fifty thousand ghosts everywhere um there were barely even stories about they're just like oh yeah that's the ghost don't worry about him um but but the the uh, the college that my dad taught at and um, and in the town where I grew up had a lot of those kinds of stories of um, it's it's a, an early school Hamilton College uh, and so there's there's a lot of like Revolutionary War stories about it there's a lot of um, you know there there's this whole thing that it actually is literally built on an old burial site oh my god um that used to belong to i think the oneida indians <laughs> wow so you know there you go so there there's definitely a lot of stories about that and um 
but so every college has those kinds of stories about the the student that haunts the dorms and things like that mm -hmm. um, is there any urban legend that you have not seen on a movie that you think would make a great movie i was trying to think about that actually and i don't have one off the top of my head i feel like there probably are i mean i love haunted house films so any any haunted house movie generally i'm just like <laughs> why is there not a film about this particular haunted house story yes um, make films about all the haunted houses all of them <laughs> um but i can't think of anything right off the top of my head do you have one i can't think of one either i was just was wondering <laughs> <laughs> We don't plan these things out ahead of time, guys. Yes, exactly. But but so, you know, you well, let's talk about some of those films. So especially, we can talk about Candyman a little bit, um, the the concept of Candyman. And we're talking about the the films, right? I'm not going to go yeah. into the, the, the kind of connections with the story. But so the film is, you know, a lot of different things. And they kind, it kind of puts together a lot of things. But the, the immediate thing that comes to mind when you talk about Candyman is the whole, you know, look in the mirror and say his name five times, right? Mm -hmm. um, which the stories that I always heard was Bloody Mary stories. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's three times, actually. So Bloody Mary is a little easier to summon. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then you also have the hook hand, which is... Um, you know, again, that urban legend of and the hook was still in the door and things like that. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, so Candyman definitely takes some of those trappings of urban legends that I think that most viewers will have heard at some point in their lives. You know, they'll heard the story about the hook hand. They've heard the story about saying the name in the mirror and, and bringing the ghost back, that kind of thing. And then sort of runs with that and, and takes it and uses it as, in the case of the films, as, as um, uh, this sort of issue of race and uh, dormant anger, right? Dormant racial anger, particularly, that sort of erupts out of, um, out of summoning Candyman. So yeah. do, you have, do you have thoughts about that? We've talked about Candyman before. <laughs> we have, we have. And I mean, I don't know that I have specifically separate thoughts, but um, the, the new film, I'm going to try to talk about this without spoiling anything, but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the new film by Nanda Costa really, I think, not I think, like it definitely does, it goes deeper into exploring um, how how race matters in this particular story and and why it why it matters and um uh, i'm trying to think how to trying to think how to explain it but basically it, it's um it really goes deep into um history and how um like in the original 92 one it's really it comes down to one guy who was murdered decades before like 100 years before and this new film basically takes the stance that it wasn't just one guy it's this is a perpetuating cycle and it's always happening and uh i think that was a really interesting direction to go with that and i think it's really interesting how um we can use these urban legends you know, and in the context of this particular film, 
Candyman is the Erdrin legend, like you're saying. Um, and we and it's interesting how they can use that story to really um oh my gosh, I feel like I'm just rambling. I feel like I'm not making a point, but um basically no, I- I think I, I understand. I think I understand what you're talking about. Go on. Well, yeah. So, like, it, it, it's 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 fascinating the way that they use this, but they also um, like so the the urban legend itself is part of the world of the movie. It's a it's an urban legend that exists in this universe, but it's also got a broader point that really is relevant to us. And I think that DaCosta does a really great job of. Um, contextualizing that and um also showing how urban legends even when they are based in like history it's something that happened to someone who we heard about or someone that we know knows someone who knows about it and it's always like something that happened in the past but this particular film takes all that and and puts it into into a into a uh into a structure where it's like this urban legend is something that always happens. Like it always exists. There's uh-huh. always, there's always, it's always relevant in whatever time it's, it's in. There you go. Well, I, and it, it's not, it sounds like, and I, I think that the, the original film definitely does this to a certain degree, although it has some, the original film has some weird racial relationships going on, like in, in yeah. terms of its depiction of race and in what Candyman does, mm-hmm. particularly in targeting um, the people of Cabrini Green, yeah, and and that kind of thing. And so there, there's a bit of a weird, there's a weird structure going on there. It's it's not 100. It doesn't. It's a great film and I love it, but in a lot of ways, it's it it doesn't quite fulfill what it needs to sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. But- and I think that this this attempts, and especially because of the fact that that the Nia DaCosta one is a direct um, sequel to that film which is it's funny because it is a direct sequel but also you don't have to fully have seen i think it makes it a better experience to have recent uh viewing of the 92 film but you also it's done in such a way that it's almost like the 92 film can be an urban legend itself and it actually kind of is referenced that way in this movie and so it's like you you don't even have to really have seen it to be able to understand and and enjoy this film and what it's doing well and it's it's interesting because a number of people have pointed out that Candyman, the character has sort of turned into an urban legend in some places yeah it's become so so this whole thing and this this was kind of being mocked a little bit but at the same time we're like but we're you know this is actually part of the way that that ghost stories and urban legends like this work um, is that, you know, the, in order to unlock the last trailer, you had to say Candyman five times into your computer's microphone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were being like, absolutely fucking not. Like, no way in hell am I saying, that, am I saying Candyman? Like, I'm not doing that, right? right. And so, so it's interesting. So you've got this story that is a very recognizable story that we've all heard these kinds of, of narratives before that is, that is, you know, written as a short story and then it turns into a film and then the film itself begins to take on a life of its own. So suddenly we're like, well, I'm not going to say that, you know, and my attitude is usually like, cause you just don't fuck with that shit. Like you just don't, 
Exactly. I don't know if it's real, not real. Does, doesn't matter. I'm not. Doesn't matter. Do it, right. <laughs> I'm not going to um, find out. <laughs> yeah. This like because and and the reason why I have seen enough movies and read enough stories to know what happens to the people that fuck with that shit. <laughs> and there is such, oh my gosh, like I I need you to see this movie because we're going to have a great discussion about it whenever you finally get to because I think there are some very specific choices that DaCosta makes that drive that home the people who fuck with it and the people who don't it's great yeah see exactly <laughs> but so it's it is interesting that that this particular film i think it's true of a lot of films that it it um it takes on a life of its own in much the same way that urban legends do right yeah urban legends most of them are based not necessarily in in true stories or anything but very often particularly the ghost stories you know just like so so and so killed themselves on this day or something like that there probably is a student suicide somewhere in the background of that mm-hmm. right but it then takes on a life of its own and it becomes this ubiquitous narrative right that that people the same thing with um another one of the films that does this really well is the Blair Witch Project Mm-hmm. Um, which is based in an urban legend. It's these kids going out, being like, oh, we're going to find the Blair Witch. And it's it's this urban legend that they know about um, in this area. And they go out into the woods. And of course, bad shit happens. And there's always, in those kinds of stories, there's always someone who is disbelieving, right? Yeah. You're like, well, I kind of believe it, but I really don't. And so, you know, I'm going to go into the haunted house. I'm going to go, I'm going to say Candyman. I'm going to go look for the witch. And then of course, what develops is that the story is true. This particular story is actually true. And now you're fucked. Yeah. Um, one of the other ones that, that was uh, mentioned, and this is, this is true because I, I hadn't really thought about it until he said it, but um, Brendan uh, at BLC Agnew mentioned that the Fear Street trilogy is yeah. based in urban legend. And it's, it's a, sim- but again, it's a similar thing. It's like, oh, there was a witch who cursed the town. Right. Okay. Um, you know, we've heard those kinds of stories before. Right. But then of course we tease it out and it actually becomes, you know, spoiler alert, it actually becomes that the, the, the people who burn the witches are much more frightening than the actual witch. Uh, I mean, is that a spoiler? That's just life. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but in some ways it is a spoiler because a lot of films don't do that. Yeah, a no, lot of I know. I was teasing like, you. <laughs> no, the, the witch is scary and evil and bad. And it's like, actually, the people that burn the witches seem much more scary and evil and bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, even something like Phantom of the Opera is an urban legend in a certain sense, where you have this story about a ghost that haunts the opera house. Right. Mm. And does, and, and again, you have a lot of, of theaters that have stories like that about the ghost haunting various wings of the theater. And what the story does, what the book does, and then ultimately, you know, the musical and all of the films, et cetera, actually takes that and is like, okay, but what if it isn't a ghost? It's this, it's this guy who acts like a ghost, basically. Yeah. Um, I think of the movie Urban Legend because of course, it's. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously, but I love the way that they, and it's cheesy, it's silly, but it's so fun the way that they weave so many urban legends into one movie. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, the opening scene, it's this girl driving on the road by herself late at night. She stops at the gas station. Uh-huh. The attendant's acting super weird. She gets creeped out by him and then he's trying it turns out he's trying to warn her there's someone in her back seat and 
turns out there's someone in her back seat she gets murdered <laughs> and then there's like the guy under the car waiting to slash your Achilles tendons you can't run away and uh, like i can't even remember what else there's the the mentos and and soda thing or the pop rocks pop rocks and soda pop rocks and soda there's um uh the the uh, yeah the ankle slasher under the car um there's the kidneys the kidney theft yeah bloody there's bloody mary you know yeah Mm -hmm. all of those and again i think that what makes that film a lot of fun beyond the fact that it is probably one of the nastier sort of slasher films from the (laughs) 90s like it just really enjoys the fact that it's killing all of these people yeah um there's there's something very mean about it which i I enjoy yeah Uh, that one is one where it's the killer is just a regular (laughs) run-of-the-mill slasher murderer monster person but it's an actual person and they're using all these urban legends because they're learning about them in class (laughs) yeah and and it's it's a it's a very fun meta narrative but again it's one of those that we all recognize like when the that opening sequence right you know part way through it's just like oh my god i know what they're doing yep <laughs> you know because we've all heard that story we've all we've all heard a variation of it yeah um yeah one of the ones that one of the big ones that i think is referenced is uh is the babysitter the call is coming from inside the house uh-huh. right yeah the babysitter um and and the the phone calls which also also gets referenced in scream um so it's it's interesting how these stories that are so ubiquitous as a part of our culture is might might not even be something that we think about much but then when we see them in actor we're like oh i know exactly what's happening mm-hmm. yeah exactly um one of the ones that i wanted to uh to mention really quickly was uh was not you know was like this whole idea of curses and um the use of urban legends in things like uh like the grudge or the ring right so the cursed videotape the cursed house mm-hmm. that um that everybody sort of knows about and doesn't really talk about uh but then becomes this 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 ubiquitous thing that you know keeps on getting repeated over and over and over again one of my favorites is um is actually called the curse which is a documentary it's it's a really interesting found footage film because it's like documentary style and then it's a documentary within a documentary in that some of the um the person who's making the film actually uncovers a documentary about this curse (laughs) right yeah and and it it weaves together all of this stuff really well but again it's it's that same it's that same kind of story of um this this room that's haunted this house that's haunted this story that everybody knows and some people take seriously and some people don't and then of course it turns out to be real always got to take that stuff seriously folks just in case no exactly exactly (laughs) um so i haven't seen that one it's it's really good it was on shutter for a while i think that it's still on like amazon prime or something like that it is um i, th- I think it's scarier in a lot of ways than the ring okay. uh and one of the reasons for this is because it's using the pseudo documentary style so you've got it feels feels very personal i think it's a really well done found footage film um so are there any others that you can think of that are like these these sort of urban legend stories? Um, I think mostly the ones that I, besides these, I think most of the ones that I 
can think of are ones where they're they're using an urban legend but it's not really about like the urban legend come to life like mm-hmm. um like this film i've talked about it before i think last last year actually when we were doing our horror series um lake bodum which is a finnish film about these four teenagers yes. who go camping out in the woods by a lake because there was this killer that had been on the loose and had killed you know a bunch of kids years before and then the murders start but it's uh <laughs> but there's a very specific um purpose behind what's happening and there's a very specific um killer who's using the urban legends to uh kind of hide what they're doing basically mm-hmm. and uh did you ever get a chance to watch that one i still haven't that's it's on my list i think i'm going to try to watch it this year finally because you've talked about a couple of other people that i know have talked about it as being like one of the best it's, more recent horror yeah, films i'm like okay so i really need to see it <laughs> yeah do it so but yeah but that's the kind of things that i'm thinking about right now is is in addition to the ones that we've already talked about are the ones that basically where you've got a killer or killers who are using urban legends to um as sort of like the the basis or or the inspiration for mm-hmm. their crimes but it's not it's not like the the urban legend itself is is coming to life or proving itself to be real which is exactly what urban legend does as well yeah exactly well the the other one and i just thought of this like this is an urban legend film is um friday the 13th oh yeah <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the whole story is about this kid who dies at a summer camp, right? And, mm-hmm. and then it gets spun out from that. And now, of course, the first film does exactly what you're, what you're talking about, is that it's not, or, but, or does it, you know? Right. <laughs> the ending <laughs> leaves things open. But so the, the whole backstory of Jason, right, is very much this, you know, urban legend kind of story about the curse of Crystal Lake. Uh, and I think a lot of horror films make use of that because you are setting up the horror, basically. And there's always the locals, et cetera, who are just like, no, you don't want to go up there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then some idiot kid is like, I should definitely go up there because I'm not afraid of ghosts. <laughs> and then look what happens. Yeah. Um, Cabin in the Woods does that. Yeah, yeah. And there, there are a lot of films that make use of that. And you kind of, there's a pleasure to it as a viewer, obviously, because you know, it's just like, ah, is going to get you. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, all of those. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and I do think that, that I, I like the fact that these sorts of films use that structure, right, to create yeah. the horror. The, the viewer in a lot of ways, and, and they also use the fact that, that the people involved in them are very often hear the stories first, right? And so right. the viewer is sitting there going like, don't do that, you're in a horror film, you're gonna wind up dead. <laughs> um, but of course the people in the film don't know that they're in a horror film and that they're going to wind up dead. But it, it is one of those, and I, I think that, you know, when you get those, in the real life skeptics etc who are like oh no i would totally do that it's just like mm-hmm. why why <laughs> you have seen these movies and you've heard these stories over and over and over again why the fuck would you <laughs> would you risk it it's like well because i don't believe it goes just like but what if like what <laughs> they if? believe I mean, in you yeah exactly it's just like <laughs> what i mean you're not gonna be hurt at all if you don't do it so why would <laughs> right. you tempt fate <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> I remember when I was in first grade, um, there was this group of girls 
so our our elementary school it was like two levels and um to get from the bottom like the the bottom level up to the to the upper like where the upper classrooms are on the big blacktop and stuff um there's this big ramp and anyway so a bunch of of older girls they were in like second and third grade um they <laughs> went into one of the bathrooms down on the first level and we're doing the bloody mary thing and they all come running up this this ramp screaming that bloody mary came out of the mirror and she bit their fingers <laughs> and they all had bites on their fingers and here i am five years old and i was just like you did that yourself and everyone else is freaking out and then someone's like oh really you think you think we did that and i was just like yeah and they're like well, well come down to the bathroom and we'll show you and i was just like no i'm good <laughs> like I, <laughs> I was like i know they did it to themselves but i'm also not gonna mess with it just in case <laughs> just in case of course no uh when i was a, a grad student at, at edinburgh edinburgh is full of ghosts um and full of ghost stories but one of the major ones is a story about the mackenzie poltergeist um, that that lives exists in um, in the section of this old it's a kirkyard called Greyfriars Kirkyard. You know you can look it up. This is a pretty famous story, um, but it, it called the Covenanters' Prison, right? And so this is a poltergeist. Well, having a conversation one evening with some of my friends, we were in the pub that is adjacent to the kirkyard, and uh, and we were talking about it. And we were talking about the Mackenzie poltergeist and how you know you don't want to fuck with that shit, and. <laughs> all of the men were like oh no we should totally we should totally go do it we should totally go like get into the covenant's prison and and it's like midnight right now right no. and i was just like absolutely not and you want to know why because people who do that are the ones that get like killed by ghosts yep. that's how this works and <laughs> so they're like no 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 because you don't really believe in ghosts just like no we're not fucking with it we are not fucking with this because i don't know if the mackenzie poltergeist is real but you know what I am not going to lose anything by not fucking with it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just leave it alone. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I am looking forward to seeing Candyman. I hope I get to see it um, at some point. This is one, actually, I think that I would pay for it on VOD. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. It's it it's funny i saw angelique jackson from variety say this on twitter a few days ago that she wished it was longer and it was like one of the rare occasions where she says that because it is 90 minutes and i felt the same i felt like they could have used a little bit more not not you know another 30 or 40 minutes but you know at least another 10 or 15 to just i think it could have really explored some things a little deeper and could have been um could have been just even more rich i guess but um but like the kills are, are very gruesome and 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 good but it's interesting because there's not a lot of scares it's not it's not a movie that relies heavily on jump scares it's more gory than scary um but it's really more about the theme and the way that Candyman is is sort of this amalgamation of men black men specifically who have been brutalized unfairly um and sort of what that what that does to a person and um 
yeah it's good and the cinematography is really cool in this it does some very interesting camera work show like a very creative way to show the city that i haven't seen done before so it's uh i i I do look forward to this one i want to see it um I also did want to mention, because uh, I, I, we'd asked for, you know, suggestions about urban legend horror films, and one that was suggested that I've never heard of, but I'm going to watch it, is, um, so this is from Arachno, at Arachnophiliac, uh, Cropsy, a documentary horror film about a Staten Island urban legend and its entanglement with real world true crime events. Yeah, and, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of that one. Yeah, and I never even heard of it. I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, it, it is available, I think, on Amazon and uh, Tubi and a couple of other places. So I'm, yeah, interested in that. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, so shifting gears completely to close out this, this episode, we talked about Disney. We've talked about Candyman. And now we want to talk about, just for a few minutes, Ted Lasso. Because <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally, so I, I finally got Apple TV, like almost solely to watch Ted Lasso. It's really the um, only reason you need it. And I mean, there's there are a few things on there that I want to see, but sure, there's good stuff. But but yeah, Ted Lasso I, is reason enough. I was like, I really want to see Ted Lasso. So I, I and uh, predictably, as numerous people have said that I would, I absolutely love it. Um, it's it's an adorable show. It's we've talked a lot about it actually on on our slack like just like oh my god like is roy the most perfect man i think he might be um but how this show really represents a lot of positive masculinity um and and the difficulties with being with having that with being positive um with trying to kind of take the wind out of of toxic masculinity and and also and make it funny but also make it real and relatable and everything um, one of the things that I wanted to say is that a lot of people have been complaining about the second season, and I don't understand the complaints particularly. Uh, I don't understand them in the sense that I think I think that people are incorrect. I, I think that they're not actually paying attention to what is going on in the show, but rather in what they expect the show to do, um, which is a little odd to me because um, the show is, has shown pretty consistently that it knows where it's going. It knows what it wants the arc to be. Uh, and, and yeah, there isn't the same kind of external conflict going on because everyone's kind of accepted the, the Ted Lasso way basically mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point. But this is also showing that there are cracks in that, not just for, not just for the other characters, but for Ted himself. And that this kind of relentless positivity isn't necessarily always the best thing for people and always is, and isn't always going to, to work out the way that people want it to. So what, what are your thoughts on it, Karen? You've, you've watched one more episode or several more episodes maybe than I have. Yeah, I've seen a couple more than you have. I've seen a couple that have not aired for, for most people yet. Um, but so I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to stay as spoiler free as possible, but I think that um so just to to start off with what you're talking about where people are complaining about the second season when I started to see those complaints I was confused because I feel like the second season in some ways is is much stronger than the first I love the first season 
I have probably watched it four or five times and um, I think it's so funny and so sweet. And I think there are some really brilliant moments. Great, great character development. Um, And like you're saying, I think that a lot of what happens with this show is that it, um, it circumvents people's expectations so it's like you you just because of what we've become accustomed to in tv and in life in some ways we just expect that okay if if x happens on a tv show then y is going to be the result and this is one where it doesn't do that people actually talk things out people have reasonable adult conversations and come to conclusions that make a lot of sense and so going into season two, when I started seeing some of the, some, and this office, this honestly has not been most, like most people I've seen have loved season two just as much as season one, but there've been a few that have kind of been uh, saying, oh, well, it's just lost some of its magic. It's not as good. And I, I wondered if part of that was because, I mean, I basically got the episodes um, and just binged them. And I thought, well, maybe this is just a show that works better when you binge it than when you watch it week to week but then for you when you started watching it lauren and you were kind of filling me in on where you were at on stuff because you don't watch like five episodes in a row and i i was just like wait no i think that some people are just getting it wrong and i think like you said i think it's it's really about their expectations i think that that this was when the show started last year um And they've been saying, and I don't know if they're still sticking with it. I have every reason to believe that they are. And there might be something that changes or that comes around as a result. But I really think that they're going to stick with this is going to be a three episode or three season show. And um, whether there's a spinoff or continuation of some sort, I believe that might happen. But Ted Lasso as a series with Jason Sudeikis in the lead role has only been intended to be three seasons. And if you're going to go into a show with that as your plan, then you have an arc. You have yeah. an end goal already in mind. You're headed somewhere. And I think that when people were watching season one and it's like, oh, it's this sweet story about a fish out of water, you know, football coach who goes to London to coach soccer. And there's a lot of stuff that comes about because of that. Um, that. And so because it's all positive and cute and funny, I think people are expecting it to just be that in season two and they don't, they fail them to understand that no, there's going to be fallout from decisions. There's going to be consequences for actions, even though it's a comedy and, and maybe because it's comedy, it's easy to overlook that, but they have a point and they're getting to that point. And I think that season two is doing such a great job of, of like, okay, we have established where these people are. We've established who they are. And now we're going to make them deal with their shit. Yeah. And and I think that a lot of that is about Ted himself and about sort of centralizing him and the fact that his, his positivity, his sort of the way that he approaches coaching, the way that he approaches people, right. Is very good in a lot of ways, but also it has weaknesses and it has weaknesses because of who he is as well. It is because he's like a human being. He isn't this perfect figure right he isn't this perfect like you know zen master or something like that who's just sweeping in and fixing everything 
Um, and a lot of this has to do with the personalities of the individuals. And, and you're seeing it. And one of the things that, that I've, I've said a few times is that you're seeing the cracks. Yeah. For him as, a, as an individual, but also for other people, right? Because he kind of, there, there are numerous times in this season where he's sort of going off on his own against the advice of the people that, he's, that he should be taking advice from. Mm -hmm. um, and he's causing difficulties. He's causing problems for, uh, for, uh, for some of the players, problems within his club and those, and for himself. And so those things are building. I don't think that, um, again, it's possible that the show could completely flub it, but it's definitely looks like it's being set up for all of these things to be building. And I think that we do need to keep an eye on the therapist yeah who is there the entire time and is watching and is writing things down and who really disconcerts him mm -hmm. and i think that that you know she's obvious she is going to have a major role in the denouement of this season and what that actually looks like i have a few guesses but what that actually looks like is something that the show has been setting up really from the time that she's introduced at the beginning yeah um and I, I do admittedly, I like the fact, like, I liked the Christmas episode. I liked the fact that it was just like, oh, it's all these happy people being happy. Like, I like seeing that, you know, mm -hmm. it feels realistic, but it also feels, um, but, you know, there's, there's a sort of melancholy under, underlying that a lot of the, these players don't have families that they get to see at Christmas. Um, Ted is kind of sitting there alone. He doesn't get to be with his son. He doesn't get to be with his family as uh, at, at Christmas time. He doesn't have all of those things that um you know that he wants and so there's a melancholy that is underlying all of it that isn't just you know oh everything is good and happy it's no there's a lot of things that are good and happy but there are a lot of things that aren't yeah and i like i like the fact that the show balances that absolutely well and i think just i mean not to not to spoil things for the christmas episode but i think um what you're talking about there i think that that's a great episode to really show the the good aspects of the lasso effect and how ted is changing this community by being by by being that positive person even though he's sad and lonely and um is going through his own struggles you see separate from him you've got higgins who is just like the sweetest guy ever and his family and they always welcome any players who want to have somewhere to go for Christmas that don't, that can't go home to their families. Um, he's always welcomed them to come and join his family and he never gets anybody there. He gets like two people. And this year, the team, because they're all coming together, there's, it's a much bigger crowd than he's used to. And even with Rebecca, like she's, she's gotten away from the generous fun person that she used to always be because of her uh her ex-husband and now because of ted and because he uh because he accepts her for who she is and he understands some of the the choices that she has made even when they weren't good and even when they were against him he's understanding of that and he accepts that and because of it she's able to be there for him when he needs her and so it's like that's such a it's a cute episode and it's really funny but it's also a really good demonstration of the positive ways that ted is affecting that community yeah absolutely and and i one of the things i like about this show is that it it does have 
its presupposition is that people are good. Yes. And that people are decent and that what makes them bad or behave badly or behave unkindly, et cetera, is not so much their inherent nature, right? But circumstances, the way that other people treat them, um, their own psychological hangups, like all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. And that part of what Ted is able to do or to help other people do is to reveal that goodness. He doesn't change who Rebecca is. Right. He helps her, his presence basically, and his kindness helps her to get back in touch with the person that she is and that she wants to be. Yeah. Um, and that I, I also like the fact that and and that she, you know, has to go and apologize. She mm -hmm. has to go and say, like, it isn't just, oh, now I'm going to be a good person. It's like, no, I actually have to do something. I have to make amends. I have to say that I'm sorry. I have to admit that I did something wrong to begin with. And then maybe things will be better. Maybe then I will get to move on. And, and I like the fact that the show doesn't let people off the hook in that sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and I also like how it really shows how the way you're raised can have a huge impact on the person that you are, <laughs> because I don't think we talk enough about that. It's like, oh, well, that guy's just an asshole. And, um, and sometimes people are just assholes and they have the kindest parents in the world or whatever. But also sometimes people are, are that way just because of the choices that their parents made. And this isn't to blame moms. This isn't to blame every parent for shitty adults that, you know, turned out that way. But I think that when we're confronted with someone who is maybe not, <laughs> maybe not always kind, it's helpful to remember or to like pull back and look at like, well, what are some things that maybe this, that made this inevitable? Or yeah. what if, what if we show more kindness to this person, not abusive people, but you know, people that are selfish yeah. and stuff and and like if we show more kindness and love to them that can that can really lead to good things well and and that it also it doesn't let those people off the hook either it doesn't right. say you because you your dad was mean to you or because you didn't have a good childhood therefore you have a right to be an asshole it's like no right. you you have to do the work to not be like that exactly um but maybe if other people are willing to give you the opportunity to do that work and you are willing to take it right it's it's very much about community it is very yes. much about um people not just people not existing in vacuums right people actually relating to each other and being able to put their foot down and being able to say like you know you don't have a right to the place that mm -hmm. you want but if you work on yourself and you become a better person maybe you will get it yeah yeah exactly um so yeah i i encourage everybody watch ted lasso you probably heard this a million times probably most of you are watching it anyways but it's uh, the one show that because I, I always try to um, sort of tailor my recommendations. When, when people ask me, oh, well, what should I watch? What's good? I know that like my mom is not going to want to watch Candyman. <laughs> you know, I know that my brother isn't going to want to watch, I don't, I don't know, um, you know, like a lot of stuff that I like. But, um, but so I try to tailor my recommendations based on what people are into and based on what I know what their own personal tastes are. This is the one show I can recommend. I have recommended it to everyone I know because everyone, everyone I know that has actually taken the time and watched it 
has loved it. It works for no matter what genre you're into, no matter if you hate sports, no matter, you know, it's, it's just one that I have yet to find someone who was like, yeah, I tried watching it and I couldn't get into it. At least in my own personal circle. I know those people exist. I'm glad I don't know them. <laughs> it is, it is a charming show and it's not very long either. I mean, you know, we've got, I seriously 10- watched the first season in one day. It was five hours. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yes watch Ted Lasso I think that that's the conclusion um so I think that's a good way to wrap up this bizarre episode um <laughs> you know as as always we are really grateful to like for people for listening and giving your suggestions recommendations let us let us know what you think of Ted Lasso and Candyman and Disney movies uh and of course we are <laughs> all always the <laughs> all the things And of course, we are always grateful to our patrons who include Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for listening to us, guys. You do have a new bonus episode that's up, so hope you get to check that out. Um, If you want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizendame. We have a lot of fun bonus episodes. We're going to do some more watch parties um and and we have some more fun content coming up so watch out for that and do please join us we also have our zazzle store zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod we're gonna have some new stuff up but we have some some of our old stuff is still there we do have a ko-fi account ko-fi.com slash citizen dame you can just throw us a few dollars if you don't want to make the um, patreon commitment we do really encourage people to join the patreon first of all because it's it's fun and we also do some fun things for folks we also have our website, that's citizendamepod.com, where I've got my review of uh, The Green Knight is up, Karen has her review of Pig, and um, pretty soon I'm going to have a couple more Blu-ray reviews, because I am working my way through a couple of Blu-rays that I've just received, which I'm very excited about talking about, <laughs> uh, as, and is especially applicable to the upcoming spooky season. Um, so do check out our website. We are bringing back the fives, even though we keep on saying that we are and we're not. Um, <laughs> we are doing Working that. on it today, guys, I promise. Uh, and, and so that will be posted uh, this week, I think, is, is what we're shooting for. Yeah. Um, you can also email us. Our email address is citizendamepod at gmail.com. Shoot us some questions, suggestions, um, anything that you liked, you know, anything that you didn't like, but just be nice about it. Uh, and of course, we have our Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. And we also have our letterbox at Citizen Dame, where we have lists of films that we talk about uh, and, and also things that we think you, that you should watch, including our ongoing list of um, great movies directed by women, because there are like thousands of those. Yes. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So check us out, and we will talk to you guys later. Bye. Have you guys heard of Candyman? Okay, ready? Candyman. 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 Not today. Not today. Two more times. Candyman. One more. Candyman. Well, we're still alive, so...